Hey, it's Candia Raquel, founder of Centro de Poder, and you are in the Central Sessions. If you are not subscribed yet, please go to centraldepoder.com and enter your email to get these episodes directly on your email every week. And today we have a special guest, Igor Adameko. He is a developmental biologist that studies a number of diseases and he has a special fondness for marine biology. Welcome, Igor. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here and have all discussions with you today. Yeah, and we're going to talk a little bit about Igor's work on developmental biology, but what is that? Could you tell us a little bit about what's developmental biology? Yes, absolutely. So developmental biology is a fascinating science because it tries to answer a question how the complexity of our body comes from simplicity, right? Because uh, we start our life as a single cell when the sperm and the egg, they come together, right? They organize one single cell and from one single cell, the entire diversity of cells in our body starts to develop. Uh, for example, in the brain, Uh, we have lots of neurons, the neurons that make us happy, the neurons that make us sad, the neurons that make us move, right? So uh, there are hundreds of subtypes of these neurons. There are different types of muscle cells, vessels, like lots of things, hundreds and hundreds of them. And how do they get into place in the right order, in the right time? I find it totally interesting and fascinating. And I see lots of exciting stories in, in my studies of, of this phenomenon, basically. Wonderful. And speaking of which, how how come we we feel so much when when we touch the skin softly than when we push a lot? Sometimes it's said in the somatic world that the skin is the nervous system. And there's also like like a once you get strict, there's an indication of of learning the softest touch to actually touch the nervous system, like say making circles in the cheek, but it has to be with the weight of the skin of a grape. If you, if you apply a weight of touch that is of, of the skin of a peach, then it's too much. Then you are you're not, not perceiving on, on that level of nuances and, and supporting like the nervous system participation in a certain way. So I wonder, like, is that true? Or it, is it a, a somatic crazy myth? Well, I would say uh, it, it, it's very complicated. Like, right, many people hate when, when, when scientists say that, okay, we don't know, it's very complicated. It cannot be that yes or no, right? Because uh, we are still investigating these things. And I think the topic of sensory biology is one of the hottest topics in today's science because Uh, big discoveries happen on a daily basis. Uh, at, like, at very basic level, uh, we know that there are somatosensory neurons uh, sitting in specific ganglia, groups of neurons next to, to our spinal cord. And these ganglia, they have this boring name, dorsal root ganglia. So there are several types of these neurons uh, that live there. Some of them, they are called mechanosensory neurons. They are responsible for feeling basically the touch, the pressure, the vibration. Sometimes they have many sophisticated modalities. 
And when they project to the skin, they, they, they basically they send a very long fiber, literally from your spine all the way to the tip of your finger. And now you can imagine the elephant or the whale, right? <gasps> several meters long. Yes, it's wow. amazing. Yes, and uh, the signal has to travel uh, all that, that way. And when they end up in the skin, they, they don't just end up being there. They actually, they end up being most in most cases within a specific structure there is a tiny tiny little sensory organ within the skin so there are different pacinian and ruffini corpuscles meissner corpuscles specific sensory organs they're like tiny little buttons that things have to press to you know to elicit the, um, the the feeling of touch and there are other neurons also sitting in the same ganglia that are called nociceptive neurons and those are pain neurons so they transmit pain so and temperature sometimes and uh, there are also proprioceptive neurons and those get connected to our muscles and tendons and those report the position of our body parts in space if i close my eyes i can touch the tip of my nose right without having any visual information right so you, everyone can do that so just try to close your eyes and touch your nose and then like think about how do you know how to coordinate your movement to be so precise, right, without seeing anything. And that's because these proprioceptive neurons, they, they tell you actually where is your hand at the, at the given moment of time, where is the tip of your nose, where is it, what is the position of your head, and your brain, using this input, calculates everything. So our sensory systems, they are absolutely amazing. And even the glial cells that cover these nerve fibers, when these nerve fibers arrive to the skin, these glial cells, they participate in, in, in sensing the touch, for example, uh, the pressure in the skin. And they also help, help to report. Uh, that's one of the most recent discoveries. Um, also, these processes, they're tunable. There are inflammatory processes in the nerves. Uh, as you know, many people, they uh, struggle uh, because of the chronic pain and so on. Yes. And there is a very big uh, uh, pharmacological science about uh, which molecules in the nerves to target uh, to, to, to get it sort of cured or uh, get it better. Uh, I think that um, at this point, we require more investigations to understand the entire mechanosensory or pain pathway. And there is, I will tell you, one little enigma that yes. currently fascinates scientists probably the most, those people who work with sensations, uh, with some other sensory system, and this is itch. Itch! Right? Uh -huh. Yes, it's each, exactly. So if you think each is not, has nothing to do it, with Is that pleasurable pain? or painful? Because oh. that, that it's, or it's a pleasurable pain because I have fallen from, from, from the skates and scratch and it's like, oh, I need to stop. But yeah, tell yeah, us what each is. <laughs> it's a guilty pleasure. <laughs> right, right. So yes, each is something very interesting because uh, our knowledge of somatosensory pathways uh, is, is, is explaining how we feel touch. It's explaining how we feel pain. Uh, it, it gives us very good understanding of how we feel the temperature, for example, uh, right? Um, but it does not really explain well why we sense each and what is each, actually. Uh -huh. Right? So uh -huh. that, that's sort of enigmatic. And sometimes... Uh, I, I see the scientific papers and discussions that um, the each can inhibit pain. So it can 
substitute the pain. It can be sort of a solution to pain, right? And when, when the wounds are healing at some late point of healing, they, they start to itch, right? So, um, and maybe that's to, you know, alleviate the, 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 the pain that is sort of leaving uh, the body and so on. So it's, uh, yeah, I guess uh, each can be a very good solution to pain treatment if we know um, how to deal with it. This is something very novel. Interesting function of each. There's a movie from Marilyn Monroe called The Seven Year Each. And that's the, the picture with the famous uh, scene of, of the white dress and Marilyn standing on, on the subway of, of New York. So I wonder if the, the pathway of pleasure is the same pathway of pain. Like, is the same highway, like you're driving your car and I am the car of pleasure and the, the one aside is the one of pain. Is, is that the same way or we have different pathways and different neurons and where where does each travel yes uh, i again I, i would say that uh scientists look at this differently because um it's the sensory pathway uh ends up somewhere in the brain and then we perceive the pain for example right but it's a perception that is born within the brain Right, so the pain pathway is not only uh, made of sort of sensory neurons connecting to interneurons in the spinal cord and transmitting the stimulus. Uh, the important thing is how our brain interprets that signal, right? So, and we also know uh, that if we expect the pain, for example, if we go to dentist and we expect the pain, uh -huh. uh, then the, the things will feel more painful than probably they really are. So pain, okay. and if we do not expect pain and it instantly comes, It's an unexpected thing, or you expect to have less pain. If someone tells you that, well, it will, it won't be that painful. In fact, uh, you you can relax. Then, uh, you know, the same amount of pain can be perceived as really less painful. So the mindset the plays mind a very important role in how people perceive pain. This is this is very well established right now. That's right? that's so interesting, and I. I, I can testify on that because when I went for my Corona uh, first vac vaccination, I was so anxious and so stressed since 24 hours before and my pressure dropped when I saw the syringe and a, a super drama for a little vaccination. And the second time I was so happy, I don't remember why. And I was chatting on the phone and like, oh, yeah, just make it quick. and. My experience of pain was completely different. So it's fascinating how I, I didn't realize until you said it, like the role that mindset plays on the experience of pain uh, acting as a predisposition. And we in, in Pilates, we train a lot the activation of the core muscles, in, uh, especially the transversus abdominis muscle that is a... Um, Um, stability muscle different from the bicep or the mobilizing muscles and it's very helpful to train with imaginary like the, the disposition to contract the muscle and then it, it recruits and it's said that it's, it's a muscle that uh, participates when you're about to um, carry a, a heavy load and then Knowing that you are about to do something helps it uh, be recruited. And 
Regarding to this mindset, do we know already in science something about a predisposition to amplify or welcome pleasure on a deeper level? Or we don't know so much about it. I think lots of things are known, but it's very hard to generalize. So unfortunately, I'm not a specialist in that particular topic. So probably the right person could probably explain things much better than me. Uh, but at least I can say that that's, that's a very hot topic and very popular area of research. I think uh, we know the areas of the brain that participate in these processes. So because we can sort of do functional MRI studies and we can measure those areas and we see, we can track the activation. So when people experience uh, pleasure, we can see which brain areas become activated. When people experience fear, we can see which brain areas become activated. The same for the pain. Uh, and uh, typically, like when you look at these functional MRI images, the pain is not localized in one place in the brain. So there are several places where pain can delocalize. It's sort of like a mosaic of things, mm -hmm. that, of activated areas that communicate with each other and with the rest of the brain, uh, providing basically the perception of the pain. And sometimes people have these phantom pains uh, or chronic pains, and then uh, even without the inputs, uh, constant inputs. This, this, so basically the pain uh, in some patients and some people can be rooted actually in the brain. So um, they don't have a real stimulation, but they feel the pain because, well, basically all our world is in the brain, right? So that's uh, where all sensations are truly born and exposed to our consciousness. Uh, and, and we cannot underestimate that part, right? So uh, the sensory pathways, everything that connects us with the outer world is very important, of course, but ultimately everything converges onto the brain and what happens, what happens in the brain. I, I find it very interesting, of course. And uh, like recently, like uh, I've, I've been like talking with my colleagues and we've, we've been discussing uh, different cases in science, historical cases that we find weird and interesting and sometimes even scary. And Tell us all we, about it. Yeah, and we came up, we came up with these uh, old papers when um, doctors uh, from uh, British Empire, like approximately 100 years ago, uh, they were going to India to study uh, yogin uh, practices. Yeah. And uh, they were, because they heard a lot of legends about that uh, yogins can do this and can do that and almost like um, could do things that uh, humans cannot do by definition, right? Contrary to the laws of physics and so on. So they, they really made an effort uh, to, to find few popular yogins and um, access them and they asked them to collaborate and for example, um, there was kind of a saying about these yogins that they can stop their heart for long periods of time. So they yeah. can just voluntarily stop the heart and be in a dead state for like, you know, for an hour or so, and then they can come back to life. And then the doctor said like, wow, that's, we, we want to investigate that. So we want to do uh, recordings on the heart. So they came with equipment. So they connected uh, these guys to the equipment and they started to do the recordings. And uh, they quickly realized that, of course, they do not stop the heart fully, but they can really slow down the heart rhythm to tremendous uh, values. And uh, they could do it for many minutes, actually, which, which is quite surprising. Yes, that was quite remarkable. I think, I don't remember, was it like for five minutes or for 10 minutes, but the, the regular people that's, cannot do I mean, that, right? That's like amazing. Yes, so we, which, which suggests that uh, some uh, training, like how you interact with your brain, how you interact with your body functions, uh, can get you in a state 
when you really start to control to some extent the operation of your inner organs, right? Probably through the work of sympathetic and parasympathetic, parasympathetic systems, which are which are called autonomic, right? So they kind of they do not depend on seemingly on our voluntary, you know, thoughts and uh, activities. Uh, but it seems that with the uh, correct training, um, people might control them to a certain extent, right? So we also know that uh, stress and the mood uh, can impact, for example, uh, the operation of digestive tract, right? Uh, and there is a very interesting uh, gut-brain uh, interface. So the, our guts are connected yeah. to our brain in a very interesting way. So they can really affect each other. So the life of our body is is quite dramatically uh, important, actually, to the degree that was not foreseen previously uh, for the operations of our brain, even to, uh, for intellectual activity, probably. So, and we, we, we live in a time when this is all getting investigated, and I think um, there will be some popular science books out soon where people can read about these things, and uh, maybe they can start uh, practicing some uh, strategies to improve the their health and their state uh, of the mind uh, based on these discoveries. So science is working towards this direction. Yes, yes, yes. To help live a better life. It's, it's a, a happier life, at least. A happier <laughs> life, at least. And we have a choice. So it's, we, we live on, on the demands of the modern world that we are afraid of losing our jobs or, or not getting hired when we go to the interview or getting pregnant or not getting pregnant. Like we live in immersed in stress, uh, but is it, is it completely bad to be stressed or do we need stress to survive? Like what's the fine line that could define how how much is good and how little is no good. Yeah. I, I, I'm not a big specialist uh, in, in, in that field and uh, there is some general knowledge, some consensus in science about that, uh, that I would say converges on a very general uh, words like the prolonged stress is not good for health. So the prolonged stress, uh, yes, causes, uh, can accelerate aging that was shown in many experiments on animals, uh, and it can also facilitate the development of certain diseases. So being in a constant stress is not a great thing, right? And I think it's very important to learn the mindset that helps you to avoid uh, being in a permanent stress. So um, the stress is not always caused um, by the by the danger that is very strong, that is life-threatening. Sometimes the stress can be caused by high degree of uncertainty of something. When we want something, but we're not certain whether we will get it or not, or when we are afraid of some kind of not so optimal outcome, it might be not life-threatening outcome, but we still get worried because of that, right? So when we don't have a permanent job position, we think what will happen to us in 10 years, right? Or, and so on. Uh, and um, yes, I do not think these influences, they are positive and it's, it's good to find a way to cope with them. Right. Uh, as I was mentioning, uh, there are evolutionary strategies that are pro that probably it's, it's a hypothesis basically um, that probably favored um, that people could stay in a in a state of stress over a long time uh, because of course if you live in a dangerous environment when another tribe of people can attack you and kill uh, or you live among dangerous animals the jaguar can jump on your back and eat you 
right? Yeah. So you have to stay aware and you, you have to be reasonably stressed, right? Okay. To, to keep this awareness to protect your life. But these people of the past, they didn't live long lives, right? We know that most of them, they were dying at the, at the brink of like 30 or 25, 30 years old. And um, now we live much longer. So, and we uh, have high chances to spot the detrimental influence of the permanent stress. So I think it, it's very important to understand that, that there are always some uncertainties in our life. Life is never certain. When it's fully certain, it's probably boring. Yeah. So let's not get stressed over smaller things. Let's get stressed about big things. Yeah, about serious things. And that has to do with adaptability to the environment, to really being present, like not to stress about little things. Like if, if there's no, if there are no jaguars around and you have like everything in place, like then like adapt to the, to the blooming, springy, colorful context of your environment. Do you think it's possible to, for a certain stress and the experience of pleasure to coexist or everything has to be perfect in life so we can have pleasure and enjoy. Oh, well, again, uh, like, uh, I, I really don't know how to answer this question. So as this is not exactly my field of study, um, well, can be your, your it, it's, it's very hard to <laughs> judge here. Yeah. I, I think people need some diversity. They, they need some probably uh, little ups and downs and sort of some, some fights, some energy invested in this. Yes. Uh, some issues to overcome and be proud of yourself. So that, that sort of like stimulates the inner growth. Um, but this must be well-balanced in a way, right? It needs to be a healthy thing, and I guess it shall not drag people in the state of mind when they feel being pretty depressed, you know, worried over small things all the time, like losing pleasure from the daily activities, right? If you wake up in the morning and you feel that, well, there will be a wonderful new day, and somehow all the problems will be solved, then that's, that's a great feeling. And I have to admit that uh, I'm quite an optimistic person, uh, but I, I'm sort of very often I'm, I'm losing that feeling. So very often I'm troubled by so many small things that in the long run are absolutely insignificant, absolutely insignificant. And I'm still getting, you know, caught by them. Uh, and it takes me some effort to, you know, to stop being stressed from them and feel happy basically like in the evening, in the morning, like, and, uh, basically, to want to uh, continue living, basically, and going on. Yeah, because you and we are all very perceptive. And perhaps it has to do also with, well, the, the experience and the subjectivity is one thing. But in, in practicality, I have cut this little piece of skin with a sheet of paper. And it's tremendously painful, like... I feel like I'm going to die, <laughs> like, ah, <laughs> or, yeah, and it's a minimal wound that hurts a lot. I mean, the, the, the experience of, of that pain is huge, whereas there are um, deadly types of cancer that are practically asymptomatic, or like osteoporosis that people those don't know they have osteoporosis until the bone breaks and they find themselves in the floor. So maybe that's where 
awareness can can come can jump in and you can say like okay am i gonna die with this uh cause yes. or not and i is it so serious that the battery of my phone broke and i have to throw to the garbage the phone like yes it's serious but like what's the respective relevance to let it um unfold as a as a maybe a chemical state in, in your mind that can be unsuitable for for health and you research about self fate as much as i remember and know of my yeah. biologist times that had to, to do with the differentiation of cells does lifestyle and taking care of yourself can influence that or not uh, that that's very far fetched i would say <laughs> so cells and the lifestyle well they are of course interconnected um, but there are so many intermediates it, it, it's like you know asking if the uh, i don't know solar activity uh, can be influenced by our human civilization in a way yes of course it can if we, if we do lots of you know uh, bad things to uh, to the galaxy probably there will be some stuff like that so the cells that build our bodies they kind of they, they finish building our bodies when we are born when we grow and yeah at, at some point our body is done and only stem cell niches they self-renew different compartments. Our skin is self-renewed, for instance, our blood is self-renewed, uh, and so on. Our gut is self-renewed. Uh, and um, the, uh, the lifestyle can influence these processes to, to a certain degree, right? Uh, and over time, this can be accumulated, for instance, if we have like um, bad habits, if we drink a lot of alcohol, if we smoke a lot, if we consume dangerous substances and so on. Uh, we can expect that a number of pathologies will develop, right? Because the cells in our body will be affected. Uh, stem cells will take wrong decisions. Uh, healthy cells can give rise to tumor cells and so on. So there are lots of these potentials. But if we are talking about the sort of the mindset and um, these type of things, I guess what science can say right now is that um, if we are in a state of the permanent stress, if we are depressed, if we lose uh, the happiness feeling, then um, there are, of course, things in the body that will also go uh, to decline. So uh, when we are in the permanent stress, the balance of stress hormones changes in the body. And these hormones, uh, they're very important, powerful molecules. They will influence the life of our cells and stem cell leashes. Uh, and uh, yes, so these effects might accumulate if we are in that state long enough. We still uh, don't know all associations, so there is a whole epidemiology about that. Uh, lots of interesting papers, scientific publications uh, explaining this, um, but we know very little about the particular details of, and connections between the mindset and pathology or mindset and health. So um, I would suggest to go and just read the scientific literature on that point, but uh, everything is connected in this universe. So uh, better be happy and healthy. That, that's my conclusion, but yeah. it's Every, hard to achieve, right? Everything, everything's connected inside the body and also in, in this planet as an ecosystem. And as you, as you mentioned before this recording, um, we can find stories in, in the complexity of our own life, like the cells and our organization, and also in the, in the context of the 
biosphere. And I know that you like a lot marine biology and that you were recently scuba diving in Iceland. What do you like so much about marine life? Oh, well, uh, I, I think I like the diversity of marine life and uh, I also enjoy tremendously how it looks. It has this extraterrestrial appearance. So like when I go underwater, I feel like I'm, I'm traveling another planet, something of that sort, specifically if I go underwater during the night. There is also like um, important dimension uh, of this type of experience or this type of research that I would like to mention. Uh, these days we can travel everywhere quite easily, right? So every working person can go somewhere and experience new landscapes, new cultures and so on. But there are uh, places, the dimensions where we cannot travel without science, right? Because yes. we need with equipment and knowledge, we need microscopes, we need people who understand things. And I think the major role of science is to expand uh, our perception of reality, to open up deep layers, inaccessible layers of reality and expose people to those layers. Because the world is so rich, complex and beautiful, it's a gift yes. and every person uh, can really receive this gift, can be a receiver. And I think despite that we are continuously suffering from the stress, from uncertainties in our life, uh, from sometimes from different tragedies, we can always stop for a moment. We can always like, you know, uh, just, you know, sort of like get into our own mind and find this moment of peace because the world is wonderful around us. And typically we pay very little attention to all that beauty and diversity. And I think every person needs to exercise this kind of like uh, stopping and uh, achieving this state of like being a recipient of this gift, right? So, and we, I, as a scientist, I personally hope that at some point my science helps people to see the world um, to a greater extent, to a more beautiful extent. And uh, that's where my passion for marine biology comes from. Yes. Yes, yes, 100% agree. Tell us how can we know more about your this wonderful view that you have on life and your research on marine biology? Yes, I, I, I think that, that can be really inspirational uh, to many people and it's very easy to find me. You can just go to Instagram and then you can uh, find uh, the story of a biologist. If you type the story of a biologist, or you type Igor Adameko, my name, then you will definitely find my Instagram page and uh, you can follow me and see all these marine beautiful creatures there. And there are lots of people that uh, I also uh, cross post sometimes with their stories. So we are the whole community of people who love this and it makes us happy. Yes, thank you for reminding us how beautiful, unique and an incredible gift life is our life and being alive in this moment in time, in this area where we have so many possibilities and access to knowledge and we can travel and learn and know more. And we have the means to go out of our biased stress to really come forth to life. Thank you so much, Igor. It's been a pleasure. I am honored to have this conversation with you. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It was wonderful. And uh, yes, I wish everyone a good peace of mind and uh, lots of happiness. Thank you. Thank you.
And essentialist, if you haven't already, go to centralpoder.com and subscribe to get the essential sessions on your email. And remember, take time to know your fire so you can share the flame. Thank you and see you next time.